On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue with the why not questions about what is reasonable to believe. Today, we'll be looking at the Mormon Church, or as it's officially known, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On the surface, as we're going to discuss, there are a lot of similarities between Mormon families and traditional Catholic families. The values, for the most part, seem to match up very closely. But even though the surface is similar, there are some really big differences between Mormon theology and the rest of Christian theology, not to mention Catholic. We'll dig deeper next. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. These are free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Thiemann for episode number 40 of the Apologetic Series now. Father Thiemann, it is a pleasure to have you back again. How are things uh, going for you? Oh, they're going pretty well. The, the academic year has ended down at this end of the planet. And so the, the summertime is beginning, which, which means retreats and priests on vacation and needing to be covered for and all that sort of fun stuff. But still, it's, uh, it's a more relaxing time of year anyway. All right. Well, perfect timing for us then to have the, uh, uh, someone in, in a superior position to uh, come on a podcast for us. So thank you for taking the time to do it, Father. We appreciate it. No worries. Um, we are going to be talking about uh, the Mormon faith, the Mormon religion. And I guess there are probably specific ways that we should refer to it. But I'm not going to get stuck in the weeds at, at this point. Something that you know, as as a parent myself, and and as the dad of now teenagers and and below teenagers, if if my kids came home and told me that the other kids on their baseball team were young Mormon kids, I would be pretty happy about it. All things considered, you know, uh, at least compared to other religions, compared to other faiths. On the surface, my point is, Father, the Mormon faith seems to share a lot of the same values as traditional Catholics. Uh, so what is the big deal and where do the Mormons go wrong? And I guess, where do you want to start? Because that's a pretty vast question. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In terms of the conservative values that Mormons have, they, they do um, have a uh, similar uh, value system in, in many regards to the way traditional Catholics live their lives, uh, dressing modestly, um, having a strong sense of family, et cetera, et cetera. That's very true. Um you know, when I was when I was trying to figure out how we could best use our time, uh, Andrew, I really had to think about that because the the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, as they as they call themselves, um, it is a very very vast topic, and it's perhaps so vast because it's it's a religion very much unlike um, other religions. And so while the average Catholic probably just thinks about it in terms of, well, it's, it's just another form of Protestantism, uh, in fact, uh, it, it is very, very unique. In, in some ways, it's, it's closer to Islam uh, than to Protestantism. I mean, in, in hmm. a few ways, um, in a few ways, it's closer to Catholicism than to Protestantism. Um, and yet, I would hmm. say in its most significant ways, it's closer to paganism than than it is to anything else, and um, it's really not even a form of Christianity at all. Although I think a Mormon would be quite surprised and taken aback if we were to say that, um, but it's it's true. So, 
in any case, as I was trying to prepare for this, this podcast and think about how can we use our time well, because the topic really is so vast, um, I think we can, we can mention a few high-level considerations like those, the, the similarity to, to other religions, um, but I don't know that it has a lot of value from an apologetic point of view. Um, and at the other extreme, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. There are so many details that we could talk about. That, that we could really spend all our time going through details. And, and even, if, even if the audience remembered all the details, um, still I think they would have a hard time knowing where to start uh, once they were actually talking to, uh, to a Mormon. So what I think could be good today to make good use of our time is maybe if I just gave a sort of summary explanation of, of Mormonism. And, and in that way, I would say, I'm not doing anything more than what a Mormon might do if, if they were explaining what they believe and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, just give a summary explanation. And then we can begin the apologetical part by looking at some of the major difficulties. And when I say difficulties, I mean in terms of credibility. So why why is the Mormon religion not credible or, or worthy of belief? So we can try to to look at some of those major problems. But then I think we really want to end by by trying to give some practical guidance. You know, how would one actually uh, engage with a, with a Mormon in, in a conversation? So um, we might talk about more things from an apologetical point of view in that second section than you would probably bring up, in fact, in a real conversation. But still, it's good to have that that kind of background. Yeah. And and I think before we we begin, I even before we begin this this first part of this this explanation of of what Mormonism is, I I think it, it's good for us to mention to the people watching and listening that uh, there are there are a few pretty easy cheap shots quote unquote that we could take uh, at at the Mormon faith uh, that I don't think you are going to be spending a lot of time on because again it's sort of a cheap shot. I, I guess it'd be sort of the same as if uh, a Mormon himself or herself would take a cheap shot at Catholics for you know, the abuse crisis, things like that. So we're going to be looking more at, at details on on a theological level, not just, oh, hey, polygamy. That's a that's not something that we're going to be spending a ton of time on, right, Father? Right. And I, I, I'm, I think it's, in fact, again, to make good use of our time, it's better not to build up too much of a sarcastic, um, you know, sort of attitude in the audience because that doesn't really help. In a in a in a in a apologetical discussion, so no, we'll we'll definitely try to avoid. Um, it's at times we'll have to mention some things which are, from a Catholic point of view, extremely unusual. But but we will try to avoid building up kind of a sarcastic attitude. Absolutely, sure. Well, let's start then, Father, with with a kind of an explanation of, of what Mormonism is, and and I guess where does it come from? Sure. So yeah, so Mormonism, so we know, is founded by by Joseph Smith. Um, so his his dates are 1805 to 1844. Uh, he's from upstate New York. So this is an American American uh, sourced uh, religion. So um, so he he sort of launches his religion in, in 1831, but he will say that in fact the the journey began before that. He'll say when he was 14 years old. Uh, in about the year 1820, he had a vision, uh, a vision of God the Father and our Lord. And he received this vision, he says, because he'd been praying 
looking for light, looking for guidance from heaven um, on which religion he should join. And so Joseph, the young Joseph, will say that he received a vision from God the Father and our Lord. And, and they said, look, you know, don't, don't join any religion because none of the current religions are correct. There has been a great apostasy from the, the true Christian gospel, and that great apostasy happened shortly after the apostolic times. So, in fact, there's, there's nothing around right now that, that needs to be, that, that is the true religion. So don't feel obliged to join anything. And at the same time, it is going to be your mission, Joseph Smith, to, to restore uh, Christianity to its original purity. So, uh, so Joseph Smith will say, okay, starting in 1823, uh, an angel, an angel named Moroni, uh, appeared to him and revealed to him where there were hidden um, a set of golden plates and those those golden plates had had text uh, on them in a in a language that Joseph Smith called Reformed Egyptian, and those golden plates constituted the Book of Mormon. So that's where we get the, that's where we get the name um, of the religion. And Mormon was a supposedly a, a prophet, and what he had done is he had uh, compiled. The, the works of other prophets, of other Jewish prophets, uh, 15 books in all, um, that have been written um, between 600 BC and 400 AD, so a thousand year period. And these Jewish prophets had lived, as the story goes, in the New World. So not, not in Palestine at all, but in the New World, North America or Central America. Um, and these plates had been hidden con containing these other scriptures, these plates had been hidden. And so the angel Moroni, he, he shows Joseph Smith where to find the plates, and he helps Joseph to prepare to translate these, these long-lost uh, scriptures. And, and Joseph will say that he was able to do that by, by looking into a hat and, and with some, some stones that were, he called them seeing stones or seer stones, which illuminated the, the characters um, on the on the plates and allowed him to see the text uh, in English, uh, and then he would he read the text in English, and he would have someone nearby, a scribe, to to write down uh, what he had translated. And um, once he had finished this work, uh, the angel came and took the plates away, and and they were never seen uh, again. So that's that's really how the story starts. So it's a very, uh, it's a unique beginning. It's a beginning in our, in, in our own country, at least uh, in, in, in New York. Um, so that's, that's where it starts. Huh. So, so the, the idea is that there was a tribe of, uh, of Jewish people living in the Western Hemisphere around the time, you know, before and after the time of, of Christ, but a pretty long time ago, about 1,400, 1,500 years ago, at least. That's, that's the idea. So, in fact, the Book of Mormon describes uh, a group of people um, coming even before that. So at the time of the Tower of Babel, you know, when the, the nations were dispersed, oh. um, there was a, a group of people called the Jaredites who came to the New World, and they established a great civilization which lasted 2,000 years, according to the Book of Mormon, and, and they fall into warfare, and eventually their, their civilization uh, becomes extinct, 
And it was about at the time that the Jaredite civilization became extinct that these Jewish immigrants then uh, arrived on the scene. Um, interestingly enough, they're, they're described as being white, uh, which is a little bit unusual if they were if they were from the Near East, but uh, they're described as, as being white. Um, and that, yeah, that, that does lead to some unusual things, I would say, in, in the sense that there's, the, as, the, as the tale goes in the Book of Mormon, some of them fall into sinful ways and they're cursed with dark skin um, and they become a new people called the Lamanites. And then there's wars that break out, et cetera, et cetera, um, between these, these two sets of, of Jewish uh, colonists, if you want. And um, anyway, um, yeah, and then our, our Lord himself appears in the new world. Uh, after his resurrection, that's one of the things the Mormons like to talk about, the apparition of our Lord uh, in the new world. And he's able to convert both of those warring sides to Christianity, uh, which is very nice. And they live in peace for 200 years. Um, but eventually schisms and heresies arise. And uh, anyway, there's, there's another war between the two groups. And then the final battle apparently takes place in New York. And that brings us to how the, the golden plates were, were hidden. Uh, because uh, yeah, at the very end of that of that civilization, the um, yeah the, the the plates are are hidden, and then the survivors uh, of that last sort of epic confrontation, they eventually uh, sort of degenerate or, or or I would say split off into the various Native American uh, nations that the that we that we know about. And for the Mormons, those are all descendants of the of the Lamanites. So that's it's a very long uh, history that's recorded in in the Book of Mormon. It, it is interesting. It seems like again, just from casual observer, that there does seem to be more than a bit of is it fair to say casual racism baked in? I mean, is again, I'm not. I'm really not trying to take a cheap shot here. Uh, yes, but it does seem to be you know good guys, white guys, bad guys, not. That that is true historically. Um, we we'll, we'll see a little later on. In fact, I, I mentioned the um, some of the ways the the Mormon views on that have changed uh, over time. But okay. it does seem as though the uh, the times in which Joseph Smith had these revelations apparently um, were influential in how the story goes. I would say. Right. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else is part of the the belief system, or wh where else are there some sources? I guess we could say sources of revelation. I guess that's that's a Catholic term, but yeah, that's fair enough. Since we've already yeah, used so it in this podcast series, we'll call it a source of revelation for them. <laughs> that's right. So yeah, so we have the Book of Mormon, so that obviously is a source of revelation for them. Um, they also use the, the the Bible that we're used to, although they use the the King James version, which probably is what we would expect. So. So they have the, the Book of Mormon, they have the, the King James Version of the Bible, and they have two other sacred books, in fact, in their, in their canon of, of Scripture. So they are different from the others in the sense that they are supposedly the revelations of God directly to Joseph Smith. So that, that puts them in a different category from the long-lost Book of Mormon and, and from the King James Version, obviously. So these are revelations to Joseph Smith directly, 
And there's two books, The Doctrine and Covenants, which was published in Ohio in 1835. And then another book called The Pearl of Great Price, which actually was first published in England in 1851. Um, and so with The Doctrine and Covenants and The Pearl of Great Price, we have the complete canon of the Mormon scriptures, which, which they call the, the, the standard works. So, so I suppose a big difference between right off the bat from Mormonism based on Christian or between Christianity and Mormonism is this idea that uh, revelation is still happening, or at least was still happening all the way through the 1800s. That's true. So when we look at the, the these two books, Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, that's, that's a good observation to make that for them, the, the revelation to the prophet uh, Joseph Smith was continuing, and indeed, for, for the Mormons, that's that's not completed even with the death of Joseph Smith. So, one of the very fundamental differences between Mormonism and Christianity is that for them, uh, revelation is ongoing; it is continuous, and the 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 current uh, the president, let's say, of their church, uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. He is a prophet, and he is able to receive new revelations on behalf of the church, and they're very open about that. So for, for a, a Catholic or for a, a more classic uh, Protestant, you know, revelation ends with, with the death of St. John, the last apostle, around the year 100. And, um, of course, we know there are certain uh, problems with modernism who are always sort of trying to find a way to square the circle and say, yes, revelation is over. But, you know, we, we still have an evolving understanding of it. But for the Mormons, it's there's no subtlety in, involved in that. It's it's just flat out that no revelation is ongoing. And the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a prophet, and he gets revelations. Okay. Um, there's also There are also some fairly big differences from a theological standpoint about the idea of God the Father. Again, Mormonism on the surface looks very, very similar. They, they talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. They talk about God the Father. Uh, but their conception, it, we may be speaking the same words, but the meaning behind them are, are different. No, that, that's exactly right. And I think that's, that's a good thing for a Catholic to know um, right at the outset, because in having a conversation with a Mormon... The Mormon may talk about God the Father, he talks about our Lord, uh, he talks about even Trinity and heaven, but it, it's a very different conception. So um, for the Mormons, God the Father was originally a, a mortal man um, who lived on, a, on another planet, and he had lived a, a righteous life from the, the Mormon point of view, a Mormon way of life. He'd repented of his sins, and he was eventually elevated to the status of a god by his own god um, and he still despite this elevation god the father still has uh flesh and blood he still lives in a in a physical place on a different uh planet um so yeah i mean when 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 you say that it almost sounds like a cheap shot in a sense that i'm trying to caricature that but no, that's, that is absolutely the way it is. So for a Mormon, there's no clear distinction 
between matter and spirit. It's it's all very mixed up, um, but they are they are absolutely clear that no God the Father is is not a spirit. He's he's got a tangible body, um, and so following on from that, for example, there's no question of of God dwelling in in the soul. Um, of any sort of spiritual union between God and, and, and the believer. God does not dwell in the hearts of men uh, because he, he, has a, he has a physical body. Um, and, and as well, because he has a physical body and because our Lord has a physical body, um, God the Father, God the Son, they, they are separate gods. There's, um, there's no question of a three persons in one God. No, they are they are absolutely separate gods. Um, so no, it's 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 very it's very very different. And even with things like creation, for example, the, the Mormons don't believe in a creation of the world as as we would understand it. So for them, God the Father was was like a craftsman, just sort of uh, reorganizing the the pre existing stuff uh, of the universe. So matter is eternal. And, and God the Father was just organizing, fashioning it into, into the world. And for that matter, not just the world, matter is eternal, but, but souls are eternal. So again, that's a very different concept. So where we would believe, and I, pretty much everyone else, in fact, would believe that, that human souls are created. It's not like that for a Mormon. So the, the souls have, have always existed. And in fact, uh, there, there's a whole pre-mortal uh, existence that we don't remember, uh, but we actually lived in a different place. And, and God the Father gave us what they call a spirit body, uh, which again shows that confusion between matter and spirit. Um, and how we got that spirit body is a little bit, a little bit ambiguous. But there was a heavenly mother involved, so there's a heaven, there's a God the Father, and there's a heavenly mother. And so we receive our spirit body through some means, which is not so clear. Um, but it's it's very very different. It's a very very different idea. Um, and just as God the Father was not always divine, neither was our Lord always divine. So he's uh, yeah. So he, this term of firstborn that we're so used to again that question of a, a term being used by them and by us. It's, uh, it's a very different understanding. So for them, our Lord is the firstborn because he was the first to receive a spirit body uh, from God the Father. And he's also unique because he was, in some mysterious way, which they're not so clear about, he was begotten in the flesh by God the Father. Um, so it's, 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 it's not something that they hide, I think, if we spoke to them. But it may not be the first thing that they explain to us when they come to your door. Uh, that is that is really fascinating stuff, and just fascinating in terms of it's it's a wildly different conception of of things uh, from a Catholic point of view. And again, not not taking a cheap shot, it just it is wildly different. Um, it I'm is. Gonna, and just pause here for our listeners and 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 viewers. We uh, Father and I are on a different connection, so there might be some pauses. So sorry if it sounds like we're uh, really poor news reporters from some backwater place like Cincinnati or something. Oh, oh sorry, Father, nice picture in the background. Um, sorry. Okay, that was a cheap shot. I'm sorry. Um, uh, let's, uh, 
I, I've heard something. Is it true that that Mormons believe that after death, if you are a good person and just, that you get your own planet? Is that is that a true statement of, of the Mormon faith? So that that that's a good question. It's it's a little bit unfair, maybe a little bit a little bit crudely presented, um, but oh, okay. There, there is but but there is something there. So the Mormons have a, a doctrine which they call. Uh, eternal progression, which is a very interesting uh, doctrine because it kind of works in both ways. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in the, not all of that just now, but, but the idea that, that you die, you get your own planet. Um, it's maybe a rather crude way of expressing the fact that if God, the father was originally a mortal man and was raised to the status of, of, of divinity, Something like that is is possible for everyone who who lives according to the the doctrines of the Mormon faith, who lives a righteous life uh, according to the the Mormon understanding of things. So, yes, something like that is is the destiny, if you will, um, of those who live who live rightly, which means that technically Mormons are hmm. polytheists. Which is something, of course, they I think they would be a bit embarrassed to. They wouldn't like that term, but that is kind of what it comes down to. So, um, right, we all have this ability to keep sort of advancing um, along the sort of the the ladder of being uh, and and to become godlike uh, as as God the Father was. Um, but as I say, it's that that I would say popularly. Just as you said, it when you die, you get you get your own planet. It's it's not completely unfair, um, but it has more to do with their notion right. of of man becoming God in a way that we, we would say is is not correct. But it, it does go in both directions, actually, because where did God the Father, who, who raised God the Father to the status of a god? Well, a god, and and who made that god God? Well, a God and so on. So for them, this, 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 this term eternal progression, it actually goes in both directions. You and I can, can hope, well, not you and I, but if we were Mormons, we, we could hope to keep moving up to, to a higher level of deity. And at the same time, if we're here now, it's because, you know, well, well somewhere in the past, that process was going uh, in, in the other direction. So it, it is, it is quite fair to say at least this, that their hmm. concept of heaven is very very different from a from a, a Christian concept of heaven, or an Islamic concept of heaven, or pretty much anybody else's concept of heaven. Um, so, uh, yeah, their their theories of deification, if you will, um, yeah, and and the role of God the Father in our own universe as the one fashioning the the planet and such and such, um, it does suggest something like um, that as the destiny of a, of a good Mormon. Yeah. Very interesting. So it, it is, it is, it isn't unfair at all to say that, that it is essentially like a polytheistic religion, but like we said at the very beginning, or like I mentioned at the very beginning, father, there's, there do seem to be some, uh, resemblances in a lot of ways in, in some at least superficial ways where Mormonism is fairly close to Catholicism, even closer to Catholicism than, in fact, Protestantism is. 
No, that's that is true. That is true. So I would say the similarities are superficial, but precisely because they're superficial, they are perhaps more visible uh, because, of course, the first thing we see is the, the surface of things. So, for example, the, the, the Mormons do believe in a visible church, um, unlike the Protestants. They do believe in a priesthood, unlike the Protestants. They have rituals, which for them are, are efficacious for, for salvation. So they have a kind of ordination, a kind of confirmation. They, they practice baptism for the dead. So in terms of the visibility and the ritual aspect, they, they definitely have a superficial similarity to, to Catholics. And that's not, that's not a big surprise in, in, from a certain point of view, because for them, our Lord did found a church. Then there was a great apostasy. Um, and so what they're putting together is back similar to what was, what was there at the beginning. So if there was no great apostasy, a Mormon would have to admit that, well, the, the Catholic Church is the true one. They, they certainly don't have much of a regard for a Protestant idea that, you know, 500 years ago, a certain group of people, uh, they had their own religious ideas and they said you could interpret scripture however you wanted. And, and they, they have no regard for that kind of a system. So for them, no, there, there was a church founded. Uh, it, was, it was visible. It did have ceremonies. Then, of course, something went terribly wrong and that church went off the tracks. But, but they don't have a Protestant view uh, of Christianity. And they do have even a notion of uh, ecclesiastical authority. So it goes that far. So the visibility of a church... Mm -hmm. Um, as we would understand it with, with, a, with a visible authority. So the, I would say the, the process by which, it's, it's, it's good to point out, the process by which a Mormon converts, how they understand the conversion process is definitely different from ours. So we, we would focus very much, as, as you would know after all these podcasts, on, on, on visible um, external motives of, of credibility, and for them, it's 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 different. So basically, their notion of conversion is something they call dialogic revelation. But basically, what it means is you read the Book of Mormon in a prayerful mm. way, and this leads to a conviction on your part that the Book of Mormon is true. And so if the Book of Mormon is true, well, then Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And if Joseph Smith was a true prophet, then the whole Mormon system is, is true. So they don't think of conversion in the same... That is, that is fascinating. Yeah. They don't, they don't think of it yeah, in the it's, same it's, objectives. Correct. Yeah, as we've been going through this apologetic series, and we're on now episode, uh, I think this is going to be 41, we've been looking at consistently, almost every episode, making the point that, you know, where we cannot prove things in terms of literal tangible proof, we can at least show it is not contrary to reason. Um, again, not trying to pick things apart here piece by piece, but there are a lot of these things that just seem to be very, very much contrary to reason. You know, golden plates disappearing, for instance, things like that, that just, 
it it strains the imagination to think that there could be a reality there. Again, I hope I'm not being too too blunt, but no, no, I, I it it does it does it does strike us as very unusual, and and maybe now is now now maybe we can start to talk about you know some of those difficulties because as you say it's a question of of showing that the religion is credible that it's that it's worthy of belief, not that you can directly prove a revelation, but but at least you can say well it's reasonable to believe it, um, and that's not the case with, with Mormonism. So we can we can go into that at this point if you like. Um, and I, I have, I feel obliged to start off with some, some philosophical problems, which I know are not maybe the most, um, okay. the most interesting for, for people nowadays, the most convincing, but, but I think that's the problem with people nowadays, not the problem with philosophy, but the problem with people nowadays. Um, but here, yeah, here. so yeah, like, thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Um, so the, the question of eternal progression. So it it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work in either direction. So the idea that men can become gods, um, even if you take the notion of a god and you sort of shrink it to that of a, of a demigod, which is kind of what they imagine, in fact, um, it, it doesn't work because a human being cannot become something else without losing his real identity what what he is i'm i'm me and if i become something else well then i'm not me anymore i, I lose my my identity um so that's not true and 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 a god at least in in any real sense of the term he's not caused he doesn't become god that that's a contradiction with the the very notion of of a god of of what god is um as a, a self-existing uh transcendent being and, you know, you, you probably already it's come up in, in, in different uh, podcasts on your series, but this idea of an eternal regression, you know, that this was caused by that and that was caused by that, um, that kind of an infinite regression of causes, that doesn't work either, you know. So um, an example that I used, I remember when I was teaching apologetics in St. Mary's in the, the high school was I say, well, you know, if you have a flower pot that's hanging from a chain and the the chain goes through a hole in the ceiling, so you can't see where it's connected, but you know, you, you can see it disappear into the ceiling and the flower pot is hanging there. And the question that naturally springs to mind is, well, what is the chain attached to? Even though you can't see it, you see it disappear into the ceiling, it's attached to something. And um sure. if I were to if I were to answer, um well, the chain is very long, really, really long. You wouldn't be satisfied with that. You say, well, I don't care how long it is. It's got to be attached to something. There, there has to be a source for the tension in the chain to hold the flower pot up. So, yeah, an infinite series of causes, that, that doesn't work. And, and in fact, the, the Mormon idea, it, it sort of walks right into the atheist uh you know, atheist joke, you know, well, who caused God, you know? Um, and of course the answer is, well, no one caused God yeah. because God is not that kind of a being. But for Mormonism, he is that kind of a being. Um, so they really, they really walk right into that kind of a, an atheist, an atheist trap. So, um, yeah, so, so 
the the whole idea of a god who's transcendent and to whom we owe our existence and our absolute allegiance that doesn't really that that's not really the mormon idea at all yeah uh can we pivot from philosophy even though you and i are both nerding out about it and enjoying it not everyone else will uh and can we look at some of the historical issues um yeah. I, I and i don't know if i'm jumping ahead a little bit i haven't read through the notes completely i apologize father but no, okay. i think we are gonna be talking about genealogy maybe a little bit um but these civilizations that are that are uh that are discussed in in the book of mormon again the the mormons have done a great deal of scholarship in the field of genealogy from which i have benefited i've I've gone on Mormon websites and looked up my entire family tree back literally to the 800s. I mean, it's fascinating the work that is that is done uh, by Mormon scholars. However, there are some pretty big flaws in it uh, from the Catholic perspective, right? Yeah, and I, as you, and not just from a Catholic perspective, but from a historical perspective. So, um, basically, yes, as, as you say, there, there's a lot of scholarship done, and you know the the archaeological uh authorities within the mormon sort of academic world they they have come up with some interesting explanations for justifying certain details in the book of mormon which seem a little bit uh difficult like the use of iron weapons uh the use of silk which uh, was supposedly used uh in the new world so they do have some interesting explanations for those sorts of things but but I would say the the big the big issues that they're not able to resolve. So they're they're they've not found any positive evidence that a new a Near Eastern culture such as would have come from Palestine has ever existed in the New World. There, this idea of these civilizations, there's just no evidence of them at all, um, which is pretty important and. And so, yeah, on certain details, they do have some interesting, an interesting um, theories, but but the big picture issues are really big. So there's there's no evidence that these cultures existed, um, and if you just look at the cultures that did exist, so you look at the native the Native American cultures, they they don't constitute one physical type. So their their facial features, their complexions, they all vary quite widely. And so there's no evidence that they came from a common, a common lineage, you know, transported from, from the Near East. Um, you know, and the diversity of languages, again, it's the same sort of problem. So there's, there's more than 600 languages that have been found in Central America and uh, excuse me, 300 languages in Central America. So assuming that those languages only started to evolve and diversify in you know 600 BC, that that's that's a lot of diversification um, in 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 a time span that only began in 600 BC, and lots of other details of of uh, you know for example that the Mormon archaeologists will point to certain certain traits that are common between New World culture and and the Near Eastern you know culture of of Palestine. Uh, and it's true, certain things like circumcision, like food taboos, uh, things like that. But there's a lot that isn't common at all. So things that we know, the Jews right. 
had in their culture, you know, the use of proverbs, uh, the potter's wheel, the plow, uh, stock breeding, uh, using dung as a fertilizer, all those things that were very well known in, in the Near East, um, they're not known in, in the New World. So it certainly seems as though the the civilization in the New World developed in isolation from that of, of the Near East. And maybe I would say a little very sort of obvious, the, the Book of Mormon describes highway systems, you know, between these great cities and the civilization. But the Native American cultures, they they didn't have any wheeled vehicles and they didn't have any draft animals to pull them. So the highway system seems a little bit, un, you know, a little bit unnecessary uh, if you don't have the, the vehicles to travel on it. And even the animals, they say the... Uh, the Book of Mormon describes animals that were not in the New World. So sheep and pigs and horses and oxen and elephants, which aren't there. But the animals that we know were there, the llamas, the alpacas, the guinea pigs, the turkeys, they're not mentioned in the Book of Mormon. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't match. What we know of life in the New World does not match life as described in the Book of Mormon. And there's and even again the idea that our Lord came and converted these these nations and established a Christian civilization. Well, but we know from archaeological evidence that at the very time the civilizations were supposed to be Christian, they were very clearly pagan. So it, it doesn't match up. Yes. Yeah. I was I was actually just recently teaching a high school art history class about the Olmec civilization, which dates to at least 1500 BC. It could have very well been earlier. That right there just shatters a, a lot of it, um, which again, it's a it's a fascinating culture, but it has no resemblance to what the, the Mormons are saying exist then. Yes. And, and there's, other, there's other difficulties as well. So those are sort of the big historical issues. But if you look at the text of the Book of Mormon, it contains things that are out of chronological sequence. So, for example, in describing the, the life of these Jewish immigrants, there's reference to their synagogues, um, but the, the Jews didn't develop synagogues until after the Jewish immigrants were supposed to have departed for the New World. Um, so that doesn't match up. Correct. Um, there's there's a, a kind of um, a little bit comical uh, incident where... For example, um, well, not for example, but there's a comic lens where St. Peter, in in a, a text in the Acts of the Apostles, so chapter chapter 3 of the Acts of the Apostles, St. Peter quotes, paraphrases some words of Moses uh, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, um, so that you can find that in the Acts of the Apostles. But if you look in the book of Mormon, um, those words are mistakenly attributed to Moses. So they, they take some words uttered by St. Peter uh, and they attribute them to Moses. Um, so it's the, the words are, are, are attributed to Moses uh, centuries before St. Peter ever spoke them. Um, so that's, that's clearly Please. a mistake, um, you know, where, where a text has been sort of, taken from the King James Version, put into the Book of Mormon, but done in such a way that it, uh, 
yeah, it, it's clearly a, a mistake. And other things too. So as you, you, you would find, for example, in the New Testament, uh, or even in the late, late period of the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, you would find lots of Greek words, you know, Greek, Greek names, Greek words, because Greek culture was the culture of the Mediterranean world at the time of our Lord. So our Lord, you know, uh, in, the, in the apocalypse, you know, I am the Alpha and the Omega, for example, or St. Paul's disciple, Timothy, but, but that's a, you know, that's a, that's a Greek, that's a Greek name. Um, so these, these Greek words are, are present in the Book of Mormon, but there's no reason why they wouldn't be present because there was no, there was no Greek influence on Jewish life or Jewish literature until Alexander the Great does his conquests and, and then culture oh. is spread throughout. But 600 BC, when these colonists departed, there was, there was no interaction between the Greeks and the Jews and no cultural uh, exchange at the time. So to find Greek words and Greek names in the Book of Mormon um, just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so too, as, as, as Joseph Smith is describing the, the, the life of these Jewish colonists in the New World, their religious practice is actually a mix of, of Old Covenant and, and New Testament practice. So he will make the point saying that, well, they, they follow the law of Moses, but they also practiced Christian baptism, and they are obviously very conversant with, with New Testament doctrines. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a, a little bit of a mix of Old and New Testament, which again is things taken out of sequence. Uh, it is fascinating just looking at basic, again, basic historical evidence just does not seem to match up. Um, can we turn back to to Mr. Smith, Prophet Smith, Joseph Smith? Um, and he seems to be an unlikely candidate uh, to be a, a scholar or a translator. Uh, I'm, I'm literally just pulling up Wikipedia, so... For what it's worth, you've done more research, obviously, on it than I have, Father. But it, it looks like he uh, started a, a couple businesses, failed business ventures. Does not talk anything about education in terms of languages or anything like that. So, how does it work that he is a translator? No, that's a good point. So, I would say his prophetical office um, is is tied. Um, to his his role as as a translator, that's that's how his prophetical work begins by by given the the power to to translate the Book of Mormon, um, and and it's it's I would say it's even though later on he begins apparently to receive revelations directly from God, and that's what we have in those other two books of, of Mormon scripture. The whole process begins because he is designated to to translate the word of god so that it's not lost and, and to bring it back into the the modern world um and so it, it is interesting to look at his um his career as a as a translator um so there's maybe two cases in particular that stick out there and one of them is is really it's a little bit of a surprise because you for all of this to have fit together so well in order to give us a picture um, a really clear picture of Joseph Smith's translation work is 
is pretty amazing, but it, it it's true. So um, in 1967, the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art donated to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, 11 papyrus manuscripts, which had belonged to Joseph Smith, um, which sounds a little bit unusual. Um, why would Joseph Smith own papyrus manuscripts? Well, in fact, he had seen them in a mummy case uh, in 1835, and he claimed when he saw them that those manuscripts uh, were, were what he called the Book of Abraham. And so, of course, the Mormons purchased the mummy. They, they purchased the manuscripts. Um, and then he translated, he said, the Book of Abraham uh, from these manuscripts. And um, that's part of the, uh, the Pearl of Great Price. Unfortunately, um, in the trials and tribulations of the of the Mormon community uh, over the years, um, Joseph Smith's mother and, and widow, they refused to go west with the other Mormons. And so the church lost control and even lost track of these manuscripts, which stayed uh, in the east. Uh, and eventually, as I say, they came into the possession of the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which then donated them back to, to the Mormon church in 1967. So now here these, these manuscripts are, they come back to the, the notice of the, the academic world and the, the church of, of Latter-day Saints, they turn these manuscripts over to a, a Dr. Hugh Nibley, who is a Mormon linguist, a Mormon apologist, although he's a bit shaky on Egyptian languages, he's sort of their best linguistical expert and they say, well, translate these now, which is a little unusual because the prophet, I mean, the, the president of, of the Mormon church is supposed to still be a prophet. He's supposed to still have the seer stones and he should be able to do the translation himself. But but nevertheless, they, they pass it on to one of their, their academics. And he does come up with a, a long book, 800 page book um, on the manuscripts, but he only translated two of them. And those two, at least, have nothing to do with the Book of Abraham. So then a little time goes by. They determine which manuscript, in fact, um, that Joseph Smith had used to translate the Book of Abraham. And they have it translated by, by three independent uh, experts in ancient uh, Egyptian. Um, and, yeah, it's not the Book of Abraham. Um, it's it's something called the Book of the Dead. It's a it's an ancient oh. Egyptian pagan uh, recipe book for for spells, uh, basically. Um, so it's it's the wrong religion. <laughs> it's the wrong time period because it dates from about 300 BC. Um, so it's yeah. pretty pretty clearly wrong. And even with some of the some of the details, where Joseph Smith, for example, will point to certain figures, so, so images uh, that are drawn on the manuscript, Joseph Smith will, he actually identified them as being various people, and he's wrong. He's wrong about all of those people. And he even identified um, two of the people as males who are actually females. And so he got it completely wrong. And, and even the Egyptologists within the Mormon uh, academic world will admit that you know, he, he, he got it wrong. And so they have other theories that, well, 
you know, Joseph Smith didn't really translate it. He, he, he was inspired to receive another revelation when he was looking at them, at these manuscripts, which is not what Joseph Smith himself said. He said he, he translated them. So right. it's a significant blow, I would say, uh, and, and, and quite clearly documented um, of Joseph Smith's role uh, as, as a translator. So that's pretty important for the credibility of the, the Mormon scriptures. So yeah, that's, and and again, out of out of an abundance of fairness, uh, yeah, out of an abundance of fairness, we, we would say you know th there may be some misinterpretations of Catholic scripture. There may be some things that are meant to be taken literally, figuratively, etc. But this is a whole different ballgame. This is these are straight up errors about theology, not just about you know uh, how many people are in certain tribes, historical type. Mm -hmm aspects that are, that may be mistaken in, in scriptures this is this is kind of core tenets that are really not accurate well that's it so that's 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 really the the probably the most important example we have the clearest example uh because he you know he, he said he knew what they were he said he knew what they said he said he knew who the figures were um and it's it's clearly not not true there is there's another example which is not as clear but I would say in light of the previous one, um, it does give one a pause. Um, so when, when, when Joseph Smith first began the, the translation work uh, of the Book of Mormon, um, he had, as I said, a scribe who was writing down in English the words that he said. And that man's name was Martin Harris. And Martin's wife was not altogether sure about uh, this this work that her husband was doing and this whole scripture being rediscovered thing. And so at a certain point, uh, Martin, he took the first 116 pages that he had you know, written down. He took them home to show his wife. And his wife, who was skeptical, uh, took the pages and hid them. Um, mm. But... I know your wife wouldn't do a thing like that, but but she did. And and nope. when she hit them, she she didn't say whether she had simply hidden them or whether she had destroyed them. She didn't say. And so this in theory could be a little awkward if if Joseph Smith is not who he says he is, and he goes back and he retranslates the first 116 pages, and then Mrs. Smith produces the originals. And they don't line up. This would put Joseph Smith in, in an awkward position. On the other hand, if Joseph Smith is who he says he is, well, there's no problem. He can pick up the golden plates again, and he can simply dictate the contents of those 116 pages. Um, so, what does Joseph Smith do? Well, he he claims that he received a revelation saying that. You don't need to retranslate those portion of the plates because the devil has inspired thieves to to uh, to take those pages and then to change them. So if Joseph Smith were to retranslate them um, and put them in their correct way, just like they had been, the thieves would produce the other manuscripts, which they will have altered in an attempt to to discredit the religion. This is the, the revelation that Joseph Smith uh, receives. Um, 
which is a convenient way around the problem, I, I would say. And we have to say that. And, and it is a little bit strange because if if this really had been an attempt by the devil to uh, you know to to hide to hijack the 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 credibility the reputation of Joseph Smith. I mean, what better way would it have been for Joseph Smith to reproduce the original 116 pages? And then if, you know, Mrs. Harris produces an altered text or something like that, well, I mean, the text would have to have been altered without any erasures having been evident. New, uh, new words would have to have been written, you know, forging Joseph Smith's, you know, handwriting. It would have been quite a task, in fact, to try to to to, to alter without any sort of uh, evidence the original text. So, anyway, it, it it does seem a bit unusual that God would say in the first place, translate them, and then afterwards, you know, don't bother translating them; just keep going. Um, so, it's it, it does it does raise questions. I can say, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's look at some of the, the doctrines or the, the dogmas of, of the Mormon faith. Um, it hasn't really remained static throughout the years. And again, uh, to be abundantly fair, uh, there are, uh, we are living in the midst, especially recently of some Catholic church teaching that seems to be in process of being, uh, adop adapted or, uh, what is it? Should that churchman say these days, uh, looking at with greater emphasis, which is code word yes. for whatever. Uh, yes. Sorry. Side yes. note. But this is, there are real dogmas that are just 180 degrees switched in the Mormon faith. There, there are, there are. And, and I would say, you know, if, if the Mormons really believe in continuous uh, revelation, well, as strange as that sounds to us, that God would just change his mind about things, it's not, it's not a 100% contradiction because they have the idea that, well, God can change his mind. And that is a bit, a bit like Islam, you know, where God can say one thing in one part of the Quran and contradict it elsewhere in the Quran. And that's just God's prerogative. But nevertheless, it is, it is interesting to see how the, the church of, of Latter-day Saints they have a remarkable ability to adjust the doctrine to the spirit of the times. And, and I would say that's the point which I find a bit, a bit problematic, that if they are the true religion and they're meant to give a message of God to the world, one would expect them to, to be leading the world and, and not to be simply changing their doctrine um, in, in response to the climate of the time. So, for example, with polygamy, and this is the only mention I'll make of it, not as a practice in itself, but but the way it has changed over time as a as a Mormon doctrine. So it was not taught until 1843, and it was not put any in any printed official text until 1852. Um, and in fact, it was specifically condemned in the 1835 edition of, of Doctrine and Covenants, um, and it's still condemned in the Book of Mormon. Um, so it's, it's a bit odd. So nevertheless, by the time, by the time you get to, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 132, uh, it is there in accordance with the revelation that was apparently received, uh, in 1843, 
And Mormon leaders really defended it fearlessly as something essential to their faith uh, until 1890. Um, and then the president of the church claims in 1890 to have received a revelation telling him to stop the practice, uh, even though he had previously said the church could not give up the practice. They, they could never give it up. Um, but again, the, the, that's not really the climate of the United States. Um, and, and they do, they do give it up. I would say even more striking is the, the question of the, the black men being allowed to be ordained uh, priests. So it's a, there's, a, there's a statement by the Mormon Church uh, from 1949, which is, which is very categorical. It says the attitude, I'm quoting now, the attitude of the church with reference to Negroes remains as it has always stood. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time. Now, even there, you know, that leaves the door open that it may be changed. And in 1978, there was a new revelation received, which states that that black men can, can receive the priesthood. So, in a certain way, that's internally consistent. I mean, it's 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 a bit troubling and and that, but it's it's internally consistent with the Mormon idea that revelation is ongoing. But what is, I would say, not really so easy to explain, even from a Mormon point of view, is that now, if you if you look for the churches. Uh, policy on this question, they will claim that there was never any doctrinal basis for this racial discrimination. Despite the repeated statements that there was a doctrinal basis for it. And they will also say that dark skin, because this is this is this is connected to the question of whether an African American could become a priest, dark skin is not a sign of God's disfavor. So they're stepping away from that statement. But that statement is in the Book of Mormon. So yes. you can't really step away from it. It's it's in there. So I would say the fact that they've changed their mind, okay, that's something they can sort of do, at least in their own system. But to say that, ah, uh, but when we did it that way, it never had a doctrinal basis, when they clearly said it did have a doctrinal basis, and when they say the question, the more fundamental question of, the dark skin being a punishment from God, that that's also something we don't agree with, but that's in the Book of Mormon. So, right, that, that is probably so. So either you either you accept it or you don't, and it seems again, it just seems very curious. I'm trying not to be overly cynical, but it does seem to be that that doctrine will change according to, you know, the the movement of the times. It seems yes. Um, let's then switch to our third section of this, and we're going a little over an hour, but I, I think this is good because I, I think many, again, many many traditional Catholics have encountered people of of good faith, meaning uh, sincere faith, who are Mormons and who want to discuss these things, and we've probably all had door knockers. Um, how would you suggest uh, speaking with uh, our Mormons 
in an, an apologetical standpoint, what are what are some of the points that you would say these are kind of the, the best ways to uh, discuss this and to combat this and to defend the Catholic faith? Well, I think in any apologetical discussion, um, we really have to try to work first on purifying our intention. Um, our our intention is not to you know to win an argument, but but to convert a soul. So. When talking to Mormons, I think we have to really exercise that purity of intention because, as you say, it, it would be so easy to just take some cheap shots um, at Joseph Smith or at certain dogmas, um, and that's that's not a way to win any credibility with you know with uh, with the Mormon. So um, that's why, in fact, as I said, I've, I've avoided mentioning certain details of Joseph Smith's life, which really do portray him in a bad light because it would be perhaps a little too tempting to just pull those out of our pocket when in fact they're not so useful if we're aiming at conversion. So yeah, we have to remember we're, we're dealing with real people and, 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 and sincere people in many cases and, and very generous people, you know, so, so they are, pe they are not their religious system. They are, they are people and they're probably unaware of, of many, many of the things that we've been talking about uh, for, for the last, for the last hour. So what we're really trying to get them to do is to think a little bit harder um, about the truth, to to shake a little bit their their a priori certainty uh, in their in their system, so that they will take a serious look uh, about whether their religion is is credible or not. And and we're not going to get them to do that simply by mocking it and and that sort of thing. So, um, okay, so we got to get our purity of intention straight. Um, but I would say. The first thing I would recommend is that when we speak to a Mormon, it's not a bad strategy with everyone, in fact, um, is that we speak to them in a in the spirit of having a discussion about religion um, rather than a, a contest of apologetical skill. Um, it's not that we're trying to be ecumenical. That's not the idea of it. But if you're trying to get someone to, to start reflecting and, and not simply to dig in their heels and 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 spout off some memorized formula well a discussion is simply a better way to to do that and and you're more likely to say the right kinds of things uh if you approach it uh, in in that way um conversation is likely to go on longer as well which is probably in our favor um so yeah i approach it in the spirit of a discussion let's sit down let's talk um i would say also be ready for them to say some strange things, um, and and you you can't show your annoyance or your your disgust or your you know your disdain basically. Um, and I don't mean that they're going to start off with talking about spirit bodies and things like that, but they will. I mean, they will quote King James version to to show that you know God has a body, um, which again that's going to strike us as so strange. Um, but they will. They'll say, well, I mean, Scripture clearly says that, you know, uh, he sees, he has an arm, um, you know, these kinds of metaphors that we recognize as metaphors, they take them quite seriously. So, um, you know, so you can explain to them that, well, okay, well, you know, Scripture also speaks of God being a rock uh, and, and, and God being a consuming fire. Um, Psalm 91 talks about God having feathers. Uh, and, and wrapping us up in, in, in his protective care, etc. So, you know, 
it, it is a metaphoric language and scripture does speak elsewhere very clearly that God is a spirit, God is invisible, but you, you've got to be able to sort of um, keep a, keep your calm and, and keep your keep your charity when they say some things that are, are going to strike you as, as strange. Um, third, I would I would not hesitate to speak to a Mormon about how much you love your faith, about how much you love your religion. I think sometimes as traditional Catholics, we we jump right to uh, giving intellectual points, bullet points, and we forget that in any apologetical discussion, there really is a value in just showing the people our great love for our faith. That makes an impression on the person we're talking to, and probably all the more of an impression on, on a Mormon, because for them, the, the very motives of credibility are, are firstly subjective ones. So that's that's a mistake on their part, that, that the most important motives are, are subjective. But that's a mistake. And it, at some point in the conversation, if it goes that far, we will have to try to correct them on that point. But if we're dealing with someone who walks into the conversation with a bias that subjective criteria are meant to trump objective criteria, well, at least to get the conversation started in a good way, and hit make a favorable impression. Well, talk to them about how much you love your faith and and how much you how much you know adoring our Lord as your God um, is, is is the whole center of your life, and that you can't imagine stepping aside from from that act of adoration and worship. But with all that said, we we do want to give some ideas here on on more strictly apologetical. Uh, approaches to take. And I would say here, what you really want to do when you're speaking to a Mormon is you want to try to always guide the question, the, the conversation back to, to the great uh, apostasy. That's, that's really where you want to, that's really where you want to focus yourself. Because if the Mormons are wrong about the great apostasy, then everything else is irrelevant because they, they believe in a religion with a religious authority they believe in a religion with liturgical rites that actually do something to the soul. So if, if the apostasy didn't happen, well, then, then the Catholic Church is the true church. And we don't really have to talk them out of a Protestant mindset because they don't have a Protestant mindset. So I think, I think that's where you focus. And, and so it would be good if you already knew some of the, the texts that they are likely to cite in support of their, of their theory. So I'll, I'll share some of those uh, with you. Um, so the, the book of Amos, uh, chapter 8, um, and some of us maybe have heard this, this, this verse before, even though Amos is not maybe one of our uh, go-to books for scripture reading, but nevertheless, um, Amos chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, and I will send forth a famine into the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing of the word of the Lord. And they shall move from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall go about seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Also, Matthew chapter 24, 
which we know very well. It's simply when the Lord is talking about the end of the world and people saying that I am the Christ um, and end of the world and fall of Jerusalem, the two things sort of overlap, as we know, uh, in, in our Lord's discourse. But, you know, people saying that I am the Christ and they will seduce many um, and false prophets shall arise, etc., etc. Also, Acts chapter 20, uh, St. Paul's uh, giving a speech to some of his faithful as he's leading them. And he says that I know that after my departure, ravening wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And of your own selves shall arise men speaking perverse things to draw away disciples from them. And 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, again, St. Paul talking to St. Timothy here and, and telling him that, you know, he has to be insistent, preach the gospel in an unadulterated way, because there will come a time when people won't want the sound doctrine. And they will they will go to teachers having, you know, itching ears to, he, you know, to turn away from the truth, etc., etc. So these kinds of texts exist, and, and there's no big surprise there because we know that uh, errors are always a temptation for for the true believers of, of God, that there's always going to be a risk of, of following a false path and, and heresies do arise in every generation, etc. So that's not a surprise. The, the point is that nowhere in Scripture is there any teaching of a complete apostasy. So there will be... Yeah, good fish and bad fish, there will be chaff and there will be wheat. But nowhere does Scripture speak of a complete apostasy. Um, and in the Old Testament, I mean, you can we can point to many examples of where, yes, there was religious corruption, um, where there were prophets who, who had no vision or who prophesied falsely, but the corruption was never complete. And all of the ecclesiastical... Um, structures remained in place, like the Levitical priesthood, etc. So, in fact, it's it's clear if we really zoom out and try to get uh, a sense of the pattern uh, of our Lord, uh, of God, sorry, in the Old Testament, that he always allows evil, but he never allows evil to destroy his work. So, whether you're looking at Noah and you know, the corruption is almost universal, but Noah is spared to keep the true faith alive, you know? Um, so there's there's lots of quotes in the Old Testament um, that explain that. You know, the whole idea of a remnant will be saved, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, prophets are complaining that I'm the only one left, and God says, no, 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 you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 men who've never bowed their knees to Baal, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's, there's lots of, quotes in the Old Testament that illustrate that it's, it's always God's practice to allow things to go a bit bad, certainly, but nevertheless, he never allows uh, the evil of men to, to destroy his work. So that's, the point is, I guess when you come down to it, men may not be faithful, but God always will be. That's the point. And that's right. why his works are not destroyed. Right. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. I, I hadn't I hadn't considered it, but there is so much of that in the Old Testament that prefigures what our Lord said that you know the that that His kingdom would not fall, that you know that He would not leave us alone. Uh, you know the Psalms are they're 
whole sections of the Psalms that are lamentations essentially of, you know, Lord, why have you abandoned us? Why have you made things so difficult for us? Our enemies, we, you've, um, I don't know. I, I don't remember more, but I'm, I'm not going to try. Uh, but there's plenty no, there's of that all in there. Problem. And then it's again, repeated again in the New Testament from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's right. And I mean, in the New Testament, you know, I think we're more familiar with the the kinds of quotes, right? So the idea that, you know, thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. And our Lord sets that quote up with a, a, a quote, uh, you know, in, in the same gospel, St. Matthew in chapter seven. So before he, he, he uses that quote with regard to Peter, he sets up the metaphor by explaining the wise man builds on a rock. So the, you know, the storms come and the waves, whatever, but, but it doesn't, the building doesn't fall because it's founded on a rock. So he even sets up the metaphor before uh, he uses it. And of course, he promises to be with us all days. Um, you know, God, Christ will not leave us orphans. He will send the Holy Spirit to protect the church. So in the New Testament, as is always the case, uh, things are, are even clearer. Um, so we're more familiar with those. But it, it's interesting to look even at the Old Testament and see those kinds of uh, examples of corruption and yet, even with the imperfect law, so not the not the one that was meant to be definitive, but even with the imperfect one, God did not allow it to be distinguished. Uh, extended. So the Catholic Church. So so basically, we can we can sum everything that we've been talking about here over the last five six minutes about this great apostasy by simply saying there is no theological nor historical evidence that there ever was a great apostasy. So in very simple terms, what does that mean? If if there has been no great apostasy, what does that mean for the Mormon religion? Yeah, so if there has been no great apostasy, then the original church that Christ founded is still in existence, and it can only be the Catholic Church. So I think, um, you know, it, you know, we can talk about scriptural quotes, and I mean, we need to, we need to explain to them because they, they need to see the pattern, and we can show them the, the the pattern. But I mean, especially within a Mormon context, where you have the idea that you know revelation is continuous, and there's always going to be another prophet to give you revelation. Especially within that kind of a, of a system, it doesn't make any sense to say that well, God allowed His church to be defeated and His message to be destroyed, and then. For 1,700 years, there was no remedy for that. You know, if, if a Mormon believes that there can always just be another prophet to keep things going, why for 1,700 years was there no remedy? Especially when our Lord himself, he says, look, you know, if there's a disagreement, you go to the church as the final court of appeal. And so for 1,700 years, people did precisely that. And God allowed them to go to the wrong court of appeal. Um, so, you know, and, and it's not just that our Lord failed once. He, 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 he failed twice because even the, the parallel church, the Christian church that he set up in the new world, that one failed too. Um, so uh, our Lord doesn't seem to be able to, to get it right. Um, but I would say here too, it's not just a question of scriptural things. The historical record is is clear too. Just just as there's no scriptural evidence, there's no historical evidence for a uh, a break. You know, the Christianity was going in one direction, 
And then at a certain moment in time, it, it shifted and went another direction um, and, and lost its, its bearings. So it, it's good to, to show the, the Mormons the, the writings of the, the early fathers of the church and, and to show that none of them speak like Mormons. So no matter how far back you go, they all speak like Catholics. And in that way, we can even, you know, maybe if we have other apologetical sources that we like to refer to when we're talking to other Protestants and things like that on, you know, the fathers of the church, you know, they, they believed in the real presence and they believed in the primacy of Peter and, and all these sorts of things. They believed in a visible hierarchy. All of those kinds of father, uh, fathers-based arguments that we use against a, a more conventional Protestant, they can be used just as well here. Because if you look at the, the church fathers, there just aren't any of them who believe like Mormons. Nobody believes that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are separate gods. No one believes that God the Father was a mere man and that he still has a body. Um, nobody teaches polygamy. Nobody practices uh, a celestial marriage, a marriage that lasts into eternity. It's just there aren't any Mormons in the early church. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of putting it, and it's absolutely true because as, as we've gone through this apologetic series, we've seen, you know, we can we can look at Scripture and see how the Catholic Church uh, holds up in Scripture, but, but especially with tradition, you know, St. Paul talking about, you know, the true presence, St. Paul talking about the uh, the primacy of Peter, all these things from the very, very beginning. And then we have Origen and Augustine and, and Polycarp, et cetera. They're not, there's no, there's no resemblance here. St. Paul saying that foregoing marriage is a higher state of life. That is completely opposite of the Mormon worldview right. where marriage is so essential that even God has a wife. Um, in that way, it's, it's the very opposite of the Christian ideal of, of perfection. So no, it is good. And, right. and you can find these sort of things in, in traditional apologetics books, you know, remember Pope St. Clement, you know, he's writing before the end, before the end of the first century. Um, and he's going to be talking about the, the primacy of Peter. He's going to be talking about the mass, um, St. Ignatius of Antioch. He's writing right around the year 100, a little after the year 100, you know, we know he's, he's being carted, literally carted, to, to, to Rome to be martyred, and he's writing letters to the various churches as he's passing. He speaks of the real presence. He's he's speaking of, of a bishop that you have to follow. He uses the term Catholic Church. He's the first one to use the term Catholic Church. Um, St. Hmm. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus. These, these kinds of quotes, they're, they're accessible, and, and you can find them. As I say, you don't need to be looking at a specifically Mormon apologetic book. Uh, any any apologetic book trying to to show the truth to a classic Protestant w would have those kinds of things. So I think it's important to ask a Mormon for specifics about the great apostasy. When did it begin? Where did it begin? Who started it? You know, who fought against it? And they don't have anything. There's nothing specific. So um, mm. I think it's very important to ask them, for specifics, this for them, this this is the this is the whole thing. That something went terribly wrong, and that's why you have to be a Mormon instead of a Catholic. Well, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened, because if you don't have that, 
you can't if you can't point to a break in ecclesiastical practice, organization, in liturgical practice, in doctrinal belief, then I'm afraid the Mormons don't have anything. Father, this has been a really fascinating look at it, and thank you so much for the really practical uh, tips on on how to have a, a, a candid and, and charitable discussion uh, with with these folks about about what are some kind of irreconcilable differences between between history and theology and and, then, and the truth and what they hold. So, thank you so much for taking time with us for this. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.